You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to uh, one of our last classes. We've got just two more after this of um, Water from a Deep Well. And uh, tonight we are going to be exploring the spirituality of evangelicalism. Now, I'm going to begin by reading you a passage, and then we will pray. The passage I want to read is the second one in your notes. is John chapter 3. Jesus answers him and says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus, we pray that you would grant us understanding, that you would affect our hearts and make us alive to you. Stir our affections, we pray. And guide us in our conversation tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on in. So tonight we're going to be talking about a word that is a swear word in our culture. And that word is evangelicalism. It it doesn't get much worse than evangelical, unless maybe a fundamentalist. That's probably a worse swear word. To be an evangelical at least in the last couple of years, means that you are a person who likes Donald Trump. That's, that's what it's come to mean. That, was Trump an evangelical? That is a topic of a whole other conversation. Was Constantine a Christian when he converted? Who knows? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Only, only God knows, I think, in that case. But that is not actually what evangelicalism means. Now, we've talked about this before. But evangelicalism is an actual movement. It's, it's actually a spirituality. Evangelicalism is a spirituality. Meaning there's not a set way of doing church for evangelicals. There's not a set list of beliefs for evangelicals. But it is a spirituality. And it's a spirituality that has four characteristics. Now, I have them in your notes. I was going to make you guess, but what are the four characteristics? The four characteristics are crucicentrism. That means for evangelicals, the cross is a big deal. The most important person is Jesus Christ. The most important event is his life, death, and resurrection. Biblicism. The word of God is God's revelation to us, and it's, it offers us a rule of life. 
Evangelism, and a lot of people confuse evangelicalism with evangelism. I hear a lot of people saying, well, he's quite evangelical, meaning evangelistic. So all evangelicals are evangelistic, but evangelistic does not mean evangelical. Evangelical is a bigger, a bigger net, right? So evangelism is a big part of it. And the last thing is conversion, and that's going to be our focus tonight. Every person needs to come to the place in his life or her life where she appropriates salvation to themselves. That means, Laura, you cannot ride on the coattails of your mom and dad. You got to come to the point where you have decided yes or no to Jesus, right? That's what it means. It means God has children and not grandchildren, okay? Now, I'm going to give you full disclosure. I am an evangelical. I am. Um, We've been talking about lots of things in this class. We've talked about mysticism. We've talked about sacramentalism. We've talked about desert spirituality. We've talked about early church martyrdom. We've talked about lots of things. And in each one of those fields of spirituality, I can find a certain degree of home. Uh, sacramentalism was a bit of a stretch, but no, the mysticism, I could find something. Desert spirituality, that sense of being alone and solitude, I get that. That resonates. But here's the thing, everyone, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, everyone at some point has to make a decision. What tradition will they find home in? Will they find their true home where they say, yeah, this is actually who I am. This best describes the kind of follower of Jesus that I am. And the best school or the best spirituality uh, for me is evangelicalism. And uh, I'll explain why. I'll tell you one thing, though. It's not because evangelicalism is perfect and <laughs> without flaws. It has lots of flaws. Um, it has lots of flaws. Too many flaws. <laughs> many, many flaws. Many shortcomings. But I think evangelicalism captures the spirit of the New Testament the best. Now, you don't have to agree, but uh, we're going to talk about it. I'll describe evangelicalism, and we're going to look at some fun things tonight. I think some really interesting things. Um, and then we can talk about where you situate yourself. A lot of young people today, probably maybe Gen X and younger, um, hate the term evangelical. And there's a, there's a whole movement today, and some of you may be familiar with it, and it's a movement called exvangelical. You ever heard of that? And it's people who were evangelical and basically saying, I don't want this anymore, and so I'm exvangelical, or I'm deconstructing my faith. And if, if you Google exvangelical, you'll see lots of, uh, lots of, lots of listings uh, about that. So, but I would say this, evangelicalism, and I'm going to explain a little bit about its, its nature and its history, um, is the most energetic, I think, catalytic movement in, in history. In the history of Christianity, for sure. Over the past 200 years, the evangelical movement has spread around the globe. People who would be adherents to evangelicalism and, and, its, and its offspring probably number close to a billion people. Did you know that? A billion. That's a lot of people. It's made up of many denominations. It's made up of many theological traditions but it's bound together loosely by these four characteristics. That is why often people will come to 
our church. And one of the first questions I'll ask is, what in the world is Christian, what is the alliance? Like, what kind of church is this? And the way I respond is, we're an evangelical church. In which case, we actually find a lot in common. People always complain, oh, you know, the church and denominations are always splitting and they can never get along. And there's truth to that. But you know what? There's, we have a lot in common with Baptists. We have a lot in common with Anglicans. We have a lot in common with, with Presbyterians. Because there's this broader category, the spirituality of evangelicalism, which actually binds us together. Um, one of the key things that evangelicalism brings to the table is it brings theological rigor along with life experience, the experience of God as well. So experience and the, the, the head and the heart go together in evangelicalism quite well, I think. Um, so one of the key convictions of evangelicals is this, is that a person needs to be converted to Jesus Christ. Conversion is really important. You need to be converted to Jesus Christ as Jesus has been revealed in his word. And so, yes, for evangelicals, sacraments are important. Well, some evangelicals, not all. Creeds are important to some, but not all. But the most important thing is you need to be born again. And so there was a day to be an evangelical was not someone who, like Donald Trump, it used to be to be an evangelical at least 30 or 40 years ago was a person who liked Billy Graham. Billy Graham would often talk about being born again, right? The heart of evangelical spirituality is a conversion of one's whole life to God. Now, evangelicalism does not come out of a vacuum. It, it, it has some some antecedents, it has some influences. There's three main influences. We'll probably look at two of them. One is Puritanism. Another one is Pietism. And we'll talk about what those things are. And the other one is High Church Anglicanism, which we won't really talk about, uh, because I'd probably just look at these uh, two of them. But again, one of the most important things for evangelicalism is conversion. And so evangelicalism as a spirituality really takes off in the 18th century, which is the 1700s. That's where it emerges. And uh, during that time, you'll find lots and lots of books written of people telling their story of conversion. You don't get that much in the 17th century. It's pretty much in the 18th century that it comes on the scene. The other thing that you see happening in the 18th century is the rise of the personal letter. People writing letters. And in the letters, there's a lot of spiritual advice and warms my heart, but my two brothers are walking through John Newton's letters and, and I just really appreciate that. Because John Newton talked a lot about, or gave advice about conversion and about a lively faith. And so what I want to do tonight is I want us to take a few moments. Now, last summer, I did a, a course called Companions on the Way, Along the Way. And we looked at different people. One of the persons I looked at was John Newton. Um, John Newton is a fellow who lived in the 18th century. His years are um, 1725 to 1807. Um, I've probably studied John Newton more than anyone else in the world. <laughs> John Berridge would be a close second. I did my dissertation on John Berridge. But Newton, I love. I think he's one of the most remarkable Christians in church history fairly unknown other than the one hymn he wrote that everybody knows. 
Amazing Grace. Everybody knows that hymn. But he wasn't really known. He was known a bit as a hymn writer. I shouldn't say he wasn't known. He was known as a hymn writer, but he's known for a lot of other things. What I want to do is I want to just briefly walk through the story of John Newton just as, 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 as a template or as an exemplar of a, a life of conversion. How evangelicals understand conversion. Is that okay? I mean, he's got an amazing story. So here's his, um, you, can, you can get it online or whatever. This is a, a fairly newer edition. Uh, Bruce Highmarsh did an introduction on it in the life and spirituality of John Newton. But in it, he tells his story of conversion. And he does it through a series of letters. Have you guys read these yet uh, on, on his story, his authentic narrative? Okay. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the story. Are you with me? So Newton was born in 1725. He's born to a man named John as well. <laughs> his dad's name was John. And John was a sailor. He was a merchant uh, seaman. And uh, John Newton grew up in a Christian household. Not Church of England, but it was, it was called a dissenter household which is not Church of England, but still um, kind of a committed faith, more a Puritan. And Newton, um, his mom dies when he's only seven years old. And that really affects Newton, of course. Um, his dad takes him on a journey, because his dad's a merchant uh, seaman. And so he takes him on uh, a journey. He goes on his first voyage with his dad when Newton was just 11 years old travel around the Mediterranean, trading. Around 1837, he has a near-death experience. He's going to get on a boat, doesn't get on a boat, somebody else gets in, he sees the boat tip over and the person drown. And so he says, wow, what does that mean? Maybe God has spared me for a reason, I don't know. Um, but then he reads this skeptic, kind of a um, Christopher Hitchens of the day. He reads it and he kind of turns away from his, his, his faith. He turns his back on God. Uh, in 1742, so you figure Newton's 17 years old, his dad arranges, he has to figure out what to do with his son, so he, he arranges for his son to go to Jamaica and to be an overseer at a plantation. And Newton's like, okay, that's what I'm going to do, it's going to be my livelihood, but before he goes, his dad says, I want you to take this delivery to this place in Chatham, and while you're there, go visit, you know, the, the the Catlets, he knew, knew this family called the Catlets. And so Newton goes there and he sees this young girl named Mary Catlett, who's only 13 at the time, Newton's 17, but he falls in love with her. And then he conveniently drags his feet and he misses the boat to go to Jamaica. Well, his dad is not happy because he arranged this whole thing for, for Newton, but Newton's in love, right? Uh, but later on, he goes on a second voyage this time as an ordinary seaman, and he returns this tough, hard-living sailor. Um, well, one day he's visiting uh, Mary Catlett, the girl that he likes, and some, some thugs or some, some sailors um, in the British Navy see Newton, and they press gang him. So they basically kidnap him and force him to go on board a ship. And so he ends up going on to this ship on this, uh, in the Royal Navy on the HMS Harwich, Harwich. And from this point, Newton's life is just going downhill. He's on ship. He meets this guy named Job Lewis, who is a Christian, and Newton makes fun of him. 
Um, this Job Lewis, you know, was kind of this wide-eyed, naive, but he loved Jesus, and Newton says, what are you, an idiot? It's kind of hard on him. Um, he finds out that this ship is going on a five-year journey. He's like, I don't want to go on a five-year journey. What if I come back and Mary is married? Uh, and so what does he do? Yeah, he deserts when he's back, back on shore. Well, he gets spotted. He's seen as he's deserting, and he gets grabbed and put back on the ship, and he's stripped of his office. He's no longer an officer. He gets demoted to the lowest level, and he gets whipped, cat times. He gets flogged for doing this. Really embarrassing and, and everything quite painful, too. Newton's so torn up at this point, he contemplates a number of things. Murdering the captain, suicide, um, and then he's just reckless. And there's a story of his hat flowing overboard, and he's going to jump overboard to get his hat. He would have drowned, and some guys called him back. And so the captain of this ship is like... I'm done with Newton. This guy is just driving me crazy. And so what he does is he, he basically trades Newton. It's like a hockey trade. Trades Newton for some other sailors with this other guy and say, Newton, you go on this ship. I'll take these other guys onto my ship because you're just a real pain. So Newton gets on another ship. And um, when he's on this other ship, it's a merchant ship. But he gets to know this fellow named Amos Clow, and he works for him at a slave factory, this depot, just off the coast of Africa. Now, interesting story. While Newton is there, he gets sick. And uh, one of the guys, uh, Amos Clow's wife, was African. And her name was, um, she's like an African princess. And she treats Newton like a slave. And the story goes to Newton, he's having to go outside and dig up roots in order to just survive. He is actually, though he's working at a slave fat depot, he actually becomes a slave. And slaves actually feel sorry for him and bring him food because he's on the edge of death. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Eventually he breaks free, he gets free. Uh, he goes to Sierra Leone, and his, meanwhile, his dad's looking for him. So it's, a, it's such a good story. His dad's looking for him and tells his captain of the ship, find my son, he's somewhere on the coast of Africa, he's somewhere down there, find him and do whatever you can to persuade him to come home. And by a chance, and it's a really interesting story, by chance, but we think by, you know, it's by providence, but by chance, this captain finds Newton. And he says, uh, you know what, your dad died. And he left you this huge inheritance. But you have to come home. And Newton's like, finally, I'm going to make some money. And so he's convinced to come home. And he goes home and he finds out that his dad lied to him. His dad's still alive. Um, but before he goes home, this is interesting, before he goes home, he's on the ship. And instead of going directly back to England, it goes to Brazil, Newfoundland, and then back home. So it does, does some, some trading. On his way home, just off the coast of Ireland, they hit a huge storm. And the ship is about to sink. And Newton thinks, I'm going to die. And the captain said, tells Newton, go and, you know, and man the ship and, and you know, direct the ship. <laughs> you can see I'm not a, 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 a nautical person. Go steer the ship. I don't know what you, what you call it. And so Newton had to do that. And he says to the captain, he goes, I hope 
we get through this, and he says, or, or may the Lord have mercy on us. And Newton realized that was the first time he ever sort of prayed since he was a kid. The other thing that happens is on the ship, he's bored, and he finds a book, and the book is Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. He's like, oh, I'll just read this, and this is quite a classic in devotional literature. And he reads it. Well, Newton, he's, they think he's gonna, he thinks he's going to die. Interesting. I got so many cool stories. But one time Newton's about to go upstairs, up onto the deck. He's, he's about to go on the deck, gets distracted. Somebody else goes up, and that other person gets washed overboard. And Newton's like, what's going on? So he actually sees the beginning of his conversion at that point because he prays. And the ship barely makes it back to Ireland. And while he's back in Ireland, he begins to go to church. He begins to go to church. Um, he eventually goes back. He finds Mary. He says, Mary, I want to marry you. Her nickname is Polly. Polly, I want to marry you, and I will make a living. Trust me, I will make a living. And she's like, no, I don't want to marry you. never want to see you again. And he goes, no, no, no. I, I can't make you again. And so he, he makes a living, but doing a pretty horrible thing. He's, he's, a, he's a captain of a slave ship. And he captains, he's an assistant captain or vice captain, whatever he's called, first mate, uh, on, on one, and then he, be, then he captains two other ships. And he, his conscience was never pricked. His, his conscience was never bothered by that. The only thing he did do is he wanted to make sure that, it's interesting, he wanted to make sure that as he was sailing the, the, the slave ship, that the slaves were looked after and that they would not die. Because on most slave ships, the passage, on the middle passage, anywhere between 30 to 50% of slaves would die of disease. And, and same, with the, same with the crew, which we don't know, about 50% of the crew would die as well. And so Newton would make a point to, to not have anyone die. Um, but he never had any conscience issue with being a slave trader. Comes back and eventually he gets sick. He has his epileptic fit and he can't go on a ship anymore. He can't sail on a ship. And so he gets a job as a tide surveyor in Liverpool, proposes to Polly. She's like, fine. No, actually, they have a, quite a beautiful marriage and, and the set of letters of, of interacting is quite interesting. Um, and so he marries her. And then shortly after that, he, um, he ends up, through a series of circumstances, becoming a pastor. He gets rejected for quite a while because he has no education. He's self-taught. He, self he taught himself trigonometry on the sands of Africa. Like, that's pretty impressive. Like, just... Um, but he doesn't have education. But he eventually, somebody intercedes for him because he writes a story. And he tells this authentic narrative, which is an amazing story. And the story becomes a bestseller. And so he gets spotted by another evangelical, Lord Dartmouth. And they give him this position in, uh, in this church. And so from that point on, Newton becomes quite influential. He's at this one place called Olney for a while. He moves to London. He becomes quite a well-known um, preacher, teacher. And um, he is the one who is instrumental in keeping William Wilberforce in politics. Because when Wilberforce came to faith, Wilberforce, when he was converted, said, I should be a pastor. And Newton said, don't. We need you in Parliament. So this is a very influential voice. Uh, Newton knew Wilberforce when Wilberforce was, was a young man. His aunt and uncle used to take Wilberforce to hear Newton speak at Olney. But 
Newton said, stay in politics. And Wilberforce does. And he takes on the whole two great causes, the reformation of manners and the abolition of the slave trade. Huge impact on Wilberforce. Now, Wilberforce also turns to Newton and says, look, if we're going to abolish the slave trade, we need an insider who can tell us what the slave trade was actually about. We need you to write something. And Newton, during that time, came to grips just with the depth of his sin in the slave trade. And he writes this um, article. It's a fascinating. I've read it. It's very heavy reading, um, like gripping reading. Thoughts on the African slave trade. And it's this witness that's used in Parliament that contributed to the abolition of the slave trade. So quite an amazing story. So when Newton died, you read his epitaph. I visited his epitaph. I should have had a picture on here for you. Um, it says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, servant, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. For Newton, conversion was key. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. And the change in his life he'll never forget. Now his, pro, his, his conversion though was not it was over a series of, of well, it was probably, probably over, over a year, the conversion took place. But for Newton, his conversion was so important. And uh, in one of the great uh, lines that uh, Newton says, is, uh, he says, my, I'm, I'm getting old. He says, my memory is near, nearly gone, but I remember two things. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, that Christ is a great savior. And so he is, I mean, when you read, but that story of conversion in Newton, and it's quite a tremendous story, I think. Um, that really captures evangelical sense of conversion. And uh, conversion for evangelicals is absolutely key. So let me ask you this. When I talk, if you were to define conversion, what, what, like, what is conversion? At some point, asking Christ to become a part of your life, but you accept this, this sacrifice Okay. But it involves also a turning away, doesn't it? Like t a turning away from your old way and then turning to Jesus and what he's done for you, right? So the sense of repentance is, is really key. An acknowledgement of sin, a dependence on a need for a savior, and then crying out for Jesus to save you, right? So that's where metanoia, this idea of repentance, is really important. It's also this idea, which we read at the beginning, of new birth, uh, of, of new birth, of being a, a brand new, a new creation. And conversion within evangelicalism can be a drawn-out thing. Not super long, but it can be drawn out. Or it can be a momentary thing. Well, let me ask you this. Some of you are Christian, I think. Um, <laughs> all of you are Christian. Um, how many of you could say, I remember the day that I came to faith? In fact, I can tell you the date. Yeah? Yeah? Laura, you can as well? Yeah? How was it? 
You remember the year? Do you remember the day? Or is it more of a, over a process? January of 1984. Wow. That's very good. How many of you how many of you came to faith as like a teenager and up or like early teens and up? Okay. And how many of you who came to faith at that point can remember the moment? You remember the moment? Yeah, Preston? You remember the date kind of thing? The date. But the moment. Oh, okay, yeah. How many of you, when you came to faith, it came like kind of over a period of time? Yeah, Val? Yeah, yeah. I should be looking at you guys too. How many of you came over a period of time? Okay. How many of you were in like kind of, you can remember the date? Okay. All right. Well, it's interesting because I think it looks both ways. And that's the thing is, is God is an artist. And I don't think any two look the same. Um, one of the key influences, I'm just going to talk about this briefly, and then we're going to talk about something, uh, yeah, is uh, the two influences on this idea of conversion are the Puritans and the Pietists. The Puritans, we looked last year at Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Right? You heard me talk about it, some of you last year, yeah? Some of you read it? Well, I, I, I want to see more hands. How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, you need to read it if you haven't read it. So one of the stories of Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a guy named Christian who's on his way to the celestial city. He's leaving the city of destruction. He recognizes his sin and he needs to find heaven. He wants to find heaven. And so he's carrying this huge weight on his back. You know the story? And early on in the story, he encounters the cross. And what happens when he stands before the cross? In the, in the story, what happens? Yeah, the whole weight comes off and falls down, rolls down a hill and gets lost in a, in a cave. And so it's a picture of conversion. But the thing is, that moment in Pilgrim's Progress takes place right at the beginning, like fairly early on in the book. You think in a book that would be like the climax of the book, but it's not. It's just the beginning, and then the rest of the book is how does the Christian life play out. And so the Puritans, they saw conversion as important, but they saw that as the beginning stage of the Christian life. And this really influences um, evangelicals. One thing I will say is that if you read Puritan writing and their life with God, maybe you'll disagree with this. It actually sounds a lot like some of the mystical writings we've been reading from the same period. There's uh, two guys at Regent, uh, J.I. Packer and Dr. James Houston. Uh, Dr. Packer died last year. Um, Dr. Houston's still alive. He's, he's 97, 98 right now, I think. And uh, they, they taught this course at Regent, and it was called uh, Cistercians and Puritans. So basically, they looked at the medieval movement and, well, late medieval, uh, and the Puritans. And they, they would argue that there's lots more in common than we realize. Anyhow, that's just an aside. The other movement is a pietist, which is a, a kind of a 17th century German Lutheranism. And uh, the emphasis in, in pietism is the heart and living out the Christian life. And there's some key people on here, but one of the most important guys 
who comes out of the pietist movement. I have a bunch of names down there in your notes. But the, the guy who comes out of the pietist movement, who's influenced by the pietist movement, is a fellow with the coolest name in church history. Tell me if I'm wrong. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Right? That's a pretty cool name. How many people have heard of uh, Count Zinzendorf? No? Okay. Well, <laughs> he's actually quite, 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 quite uh, an important figure in history. So, so Ludwig von Zinzendorf, he was one of the most colorful figures in church history. He ends up getting this land. And on this land, he purchases his grandmother's estate. And it's, it's quite a bit of land. And shortly after that, these people come up who are running away from persecution. And they said, can we stay here and not you know, be persecuted? And Zinzendorf says, yes, you can stay here. And so they set up shop. And they were, um, they were from Bohemia. And uh, then other people showed up. And before you know it, he had this place, this, this land, quite a bit of land. Places were built, churches were built, and people from different traditions started coming together, living together, which in the 17th century is very unusual because that's the time where everybody's killing each other for their faith. But everybody's getting along. But eventually they start bumping into each other. Zinzendorf says, everybody, gather together, we're going to pray together. And they pray together and a revival breaks out, this famous revival. Anyhow, out of this place called Hernhut, out of this place, a prayer revival emerges. But the other thing that emerges is a missionary movement that was concerned with conversion. And the missionary movement, does anybody know what they were called? The Moravians. Yes, the Moravians. And the Moravians go everywhere. Where do they go? They, they, they travel uh, to South Africa, Algeria, Macau, Romania, Constantinople, Greenland, Georgia, Suriname, Guinea. And out of every 60 Moravians, one became a missionary. This is a crazy missionary movement. And it influences evangelicalism big time. One of the guys who was influenced by the Moravians, well, two guys, is um, John and Charles Wesley. The, the Methodists. They see these Moravians in the middle of a storm at sea. Wesley's crying out saying, I'm going to die. And the Moravians are singing. And he's like, why are you guys singing? He's like, well, our hope is in Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that has a big influence on, on Wesley. Anyhow, so this, this movement to share the gospel with the world and lead people to conversion was a big influence on evangelicals. Now, one of the questions I want to ask you as we're talking about conversion is, and it's a difficult question, and here, here's the question. Have you ever met someone who was converted, but then just returned to their old way of life as if nothing ever happened? Have you ever met people like that? People who are alive to Jesus on fire, and then kind of went back to their old ways. Have you ever met somebody like that? How do you make sense of that? Because you've had a lot of like, summer camps. 
Okay, so, okay, Taylor, that's good. You see, you do see that, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Thursday night of the week. You take that stick and you throw it into the fire. And you say, oh, I'm on fire for Jesus, right? Until they go back home, right? Yeah, no, I've, I've been to lots of those camps, yeah. Um, so what's going on then? Why, what, what's, what's happening? Okay, so it was like a false, or not false, or an, or an artificial environment that really didn't go beyond simply the moment, getting caught up in the moment. Very good, okay, yeah. I want to see what you guys say. Uh, I wonder if he was ever engaged with the Lord. Okay, they're polluted by the world and their flesh. Parable of the soils, very good, yeah. The heart on, the seed on rocky soil and weeds, yeah. He just quit. So I was saying he knew somebody who, who would preach and be on fire and then gone, left his family, left everything. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, you always remember the guy, um, Ray, is it, is it Charles Templeton? Is that the guy who was with Billy Graham? Yeah. Yeah, he was quite an evangelist. And then he turn right norm he turned yeah, he, that's who came to mind when i read this question yeah yeah so okay so what happens yeah Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's a, when, when Jesus talks about uh, you know, being filled by un, it was an unclean spirit, and then you get rid of. But if you don't fill yourself with 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 um, the Holy Spirit, then any, seven more will come in and make you into a situation worse than before. Um, yeah, that, that might be a might be a parallel as well as I think when you, you guys have said you know the parable of the soils, where the soil lands on different kinds of um, or the the seed lands on different kinds of soil and is affected differently. I've often wondered that. I've met people. I've, you know, I've been pastoring here all, you know, in my 19th year here, and I've seen people who are elders, who are small group leaders, who are on fire for Jesus. And they're in the, where are they now file? <laughs> they just kind of walk, walked away. And I always want to ask them, like, what, what was that? I know I have some students of mine at PLBC who are just on fire for, for Jesus and then I see what they're writing online now I'm like what 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 happened yeah so how do you make sense of this this is, this is a problem how can you tell if a person's truly converted now thankfully oh yeah so my yeah Someone wrote, uh, my sister and her family have been led away by an ex-evangelical pastor. Yeah, some people who are, make it their business to, to deconstruct faith. Now, this idea of, okay, what then constitutes true conversion is a big question. And this is where I say why we do water from a deep well. Because there is 
there are, there are deep wells from which we can draw from. Because there are people who are way smarter than I am who have been talking about these things. And one of the guys who talks about this uh, quite a bit, and I think everybody should read this book, especially those in ministry, but I think everyone should read it, is um, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a uh, 18th century uh, pastor and theologian. He's probably America's greatest philosopher, I would say. One of, probably one of America's greatest philosophers. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 18th century. He's a pastor in a place called Northampton. And he was at the center of a revival that takes place in Northampton. Uh, he preaches a message. And the thing is, Edwards was not a dynamic preacher. From what everything I can see is he's one of those guys, when he preached, he just leaned over his notes and he just kind of read for an hour. So you're like, okay, this must be the work of the Spirit. <laughs> because he preaches this two-part series. And while he's preaching, after, during the time he's preaching, somebody, one of the leaders, one of the most popular kids in the youth group suddenly died, tragically died. And that combined with Edward's sermons led to a revival that spread through the land. And it's one of the most famous revivals in, in, um, in church history. It's, it's the beginning of what is called the Great Awakening. And Edwards, who is very meticulous, he wrote down and he described what happened in this revival. And you can read it. Um, it's called Surprising Work of God. And so you can read about this revival and, and see what actually happened. So this revival takes place and it spreads like crazy. And so Edwards writes it down and describes it. And Edwards is quite taken away, taken away by this because almost the entire, not just his church, but the entire countryside, everybody was coming to faith in Jesus. It was crazy. And Edwards was just, I mean, he describes this, this, this great awakening and, 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 and everybody's on fire and everybody's alive, except, except comes to an end. It comes to an abrupt end, the revival, when someone who gets so carried away ends up killing himself. It's, it's kind of a strange situation. But then Edwards notices something. Like everybody had come to faith in Jesus. Everybody had come to faith in Jesus. But a lot of these people who are so alive to God had gone back to their old ways. And showed no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And Edwards asked the question, what is going on, right? That's right. So, yeah, I mean, there is a tension in Scripture where, so Ray was saying, uh, talking about, you know, um, well, even the, the shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep knows the shepherd and he knows them by name and, and they know each other and and then once you're, you know, you cannot be taken away out of God's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, Romans 8. But then you also have other passages which talks about people like in Hebrews falling away. Who once tasted the things of God but then fell away. So what's going on there? So there is a bit of tension, I think, in Scripture. But Edwards would probably more, be more along your lines, Ray. You know, once 
you know, that nothing can separate us from the love of God uh, in Jesus Christ. So Edwards asks that question, what, what's going on? And the way he unpacks this question, he says, all right, what makes up true conversion? That's why I said this book, Religious Affections, I think is one of the most important books a Christian should read. I don't often say that. Well, I just talk a lot about books. I don't think I ever say this. This is a really important book. And it's readable. You're probably like 18th century Edwards. You know, this sounds really hard to read. It's very readable. It's very readable. Because he's so organized. And so sometimes you could just read the headings and just kind of skim underneath. But you get, you get his main points. Um, anybody? Yeah, thank you. The Hebrews 6.4 one. Um, anybody online has read uh, Religious Affections? No, no. Okay. We now have our homework over the Christmas break. Uh, I think you can get it for like nothing on Kindle, if you have a Kindle. It's a dollar. So you just found it? It's a dollar on Kindle. Right. What a deal. Yeah. And so, what does he say? So he asks a question. What? So what Edwards does is, is, is fascinating. Because what he says... He says, all right, what does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be converted? Um, he says, all right, I'm going to look at the signs of conversion. But before I look at the signs of conversion, what I want to do, this is what he says, I want to lay out, and yeah, I think it's uh, 10, 10 signs, 12 signs, 12 signs that don't really tell you one thing or another. This is really important. He says, here's 12 signs that you may experience, uh, these are 12 characteristics you may experience, but they actually don't tell you whether or not you're, you're converted. And I find this really helpful. So here's a few of them. He says, what are the, you know, what people often say are signs of conversion. He says, if you have um, excitement and enthusiasm, so Taylor, like you were saying, around the campfire, I'm pretty excited, pretty enthusiastic. If you're excited and you're enthusiastic for Jesus, that does not mean you're converted. Doesn't mean you're not converted, but it actually doesn't tell you anything. Because we know feelings come and feelings go. Secondly, you can be healed in Jesus' name. You can experience ecstatic phenomenon, but that does not tell you whether or not you're converted. That it may it may mean you're converted, but it does that in itself will not tell you anything. As you're listening to this, I want, I want to hear your thoughts afterwards. Thirdly, talking a lot about Jesus is not a sign of conversion. Just because you're talking a lot about Jesus doesn't mean you're converted. Four, being willing and able to quote scripture doesn't tell you a thing. It may mean, you know, you're, you could be converted, but just the fact that you're able to quote a lot of scripture is no determiner of conversion. It's not a sign of conversion. Because the devil knows lots of scripture. Right? Being enthusiastic about church and going to church does not tell you anything. Oh, that's interesting. But how many times, how many times have you seen, I always look at Ray, because I know Ray, you've been around here for a while, and Al, you guys have been around. How many times have we seen people baptized, saying, oh, I love this church, I just love everything, they're baptized, and we never see them again. 
I see that happen so often. Oh, I, I love this church. I love this church. Until they get annoyed with the church, and then you never see them again. Comfort and joy do not tell us anything. They may be from God or they may not be. To praise or glorify God with our lips, just with our lips, doesn't say, because you could, you could say, be saying all the right things. Confidence that, one is, that what one has experienced is from God. You may be wrong. So there's, there's actually 12, and I just kind of summarized some of them. Basically, what he's saying is that these things, they actually don't tell you whether or not you're converted. But there are some signs that point to a changed heart. And so this book is called Religious Affections. You have to realize affections in the 18th century does not mean your heart. It means your head, this division between head and heart did not exist. It was head-heart together, right? And so what would be some of the signs of conversion then? Well, first, oh, and the other thing is when he describes, all right, these are the signs of conversion. He says, when you read these, don't make this mistake. Don't look at these signs of conversion and then wonder whether or not your friend is converted. Let's see, does Sharon uh, meet those? Uh, I'm not sure. He goes, it's not for other people. He goes, look in your own heart. This is for you, right? Don't be judging other people. So he says, yeah, sure, Carla. Probably, yeah. It's just a nice, a nice number. Yeah. It's better than seventeen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, he says the first sign is that um, any desire we have from God has to be the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, so we have to be able to discern whether it's the Holy Spirit. And part of that is we need to, to experiencing a deepening love for God, for his glory, an awareness of his excellence with no reference to ourselves. Our hearts are just focused on God and who he is and his glory. Not on what he gives me, but just on the fact that God is amazing. Because that's a sign. If you're, if, you're, if you're genuinely lifted up to, to, to just who God is and his glory, that, that's a good sign. The other sign is this, is our hearts are lifted to an appreciation of beauty. That God is a God who created wondrous things. And our hearts are filled with a sense of wonder and awe of the beauty of the Lord. Now that's a big thing for... Um, Edwards. Edwards talks a lot about the beauty and a lot about creation because Edwards actually came to faith. You know how he came to faith? I've shared this before. He came to faith, not through somebody preaching to him. He came to faith by reflecting on the intricacy of a spider web. And from there, I mean, he read God's word as well, but it was, he was drawn to a sense of wonder of God's creator, creation and his beauty of creation. The fourth sign is that... Um, these gracious affections arise from the mind to the point that we begin to understand divine things. So what Edwards is saying is not just about feeling really on fire for Jesus. It's about actually understanding who Jesus is. 
who God is, what he has done, and that and, and, and understanding what he's done lifts our heart to, to glorify him. But understanding is really important. So you can't just have this, you know, I love just coming into a worship service and just swaying back and forth. I don't even have to listen to the lyrics. It doesn't. Have you ever seen that there's this video where these people are, I shouldn't, but they're, they're, they're worshiping and they're singing and, and the lyrics make no sense. And they're like, and this one girl keeps saying, what are we singing? She goes, I don't think, don't think, just enjoy. <laughs> it's like, well, no. But there is something, but our, our minds have to, have to play a role, right? The fifth sign is um, this conviction, the certainty of divine things, that Jesus has saved me through the cross. The, the sixth sign is a recognition that, that I am a sinner in need of grace. And I've met a lot of people who've, who, I, I've met a lot of people who get swept up into the emotion of a worship service but do not really ever have a sense of one's sin. And Edward says, you know, what's that? As of your sin, of, of how you don't measure up that you're in need of a savior. And Edward says, you know what? Part of conversion is a growing recognition of one's sinfulness, that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And I would say, though, in, in, in the Christian life, when we first come to faith, when we are first converted, I think our understanding of sin is a lot smaller than the older we get in the faith. I know the older I get, the depth of my sin knows no end, knows no bound. Like, I just realized how deep my sin goes. But with that, what does Newton say? The end of my life, I know that I'm a great sinner. I'm a, you know, but Jesus is a great Savior, right? The other sign is, is, is the growth in holiness, turning away from sin to God and, and, and living your life separate um, from the old way of life. The other one the eighth sign is the desire to be more Christ-like. It's a desire to be more like Jesus. The ninth sign is this desire that there be a symmetry, a connection between what I believe and how I live. The tenth sign is, is, this, is this yearning, this yearning for to taste more and more the things of God. So what are your thoughts about this? Edward thinks this need for discernment. Yeah, Denise, so good. The possibility of counterfeit experience. That's really important. He talks a lot about counterfeit because he says all these things that we think are signs of conversion, he goes, they might be counterfeit. They may, they, they may actually not be produced by God at all. And so you need to be aware of that. That's good. Thoughts? Ray? Yeah, this deep abiding sense of companionship with God. Yeah. And I, I, can, I, can, I can put on any show anybody, but I can't put my heart on Right. And God knows you better than you know even yourself. 
how, if I can ask you, how, how has that developed over the years? Has it always been there or has it deepened or changed? Yeah. And, and, it's the hills and valleys. It's, it's, it's the law of undulation, as Lewis puts it. Yeah. 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 So it, it is a journey. That's very good. You um, talk about the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Anybody else? Any other question? Yeah, Preston. Well, I think because, well, I think in our day and age, but it's interesting, this is in the 18th century, it applies then, but I think even more so now, is that we determine what is true by how we feel. We live in a culture where our emotions, our emotions and our experiences have more of a say over our lives than anything else. Um, and so I think it's easy to get, you know, to go into a worship service and you hear moving music and you hear piano and then you prayer and to feel the sense of emotion and then to think, equate that with the work of the Spirit. And here's the thing, it may be the Holy Spirit working in you or may not, but that emotion in itself doesn't tell you one thing or the other. That's what Edwards is saying. So you can't just ride on the fact that, oh, I felt really emotional at the service last week, therefore I am a... No, there's, there's, you need to think about this a little bit deeper, right? But I do think our language of our culture today is, is a language of emotion. It, it has a lot of say. Yeah, Laura. Very good, yeah. It's when, that's when the rubber hits the road during trials and tribulations, through many dangers, toils, and snares, right? Yeah. Wow. Anything that makes me know that I need God is a blessing. That's rich. That's very good. Thank you. Yeah. Anyhow, I think, I think Edwards is, is really helpful. Uh, have I mentioned that? <laughs> but I think he's so helpful. It, it's helped me so much as a pastor. Because then, you, you know, people say, oh, I'm just on fire for Jesus. You know, I just love this church and I just love Pastor Mark and I love what, what you said. I'm like, okay. But let's talk about deeper things, right? It's not just about being swept up in the emotion. Emotions are important, don't get me wrong. But it's not just about that. So let me ask you, oh, sorry, Taylor? I was going to say, I love how it's like specific, but also something that is very real. Like, I Yeah. Easily identifiable, but in a lot of ways, it's also about your head and your heart. And like personal experience, right? And so this book goes into the lid, it's really different for every single person. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. See, Edwards, even though he's 18th century, Edwards is, is a Puritan. In many ways, he's, he's a Puritan because 
and under each section, he drills and he drills and he drills. And the thing about the Puritans is they understood all the rhythms of the human heart. And Edwards really gets the human heart. He was an, he was an interesting fellow. He would write off, he was just always lost in his thoughts and he was very frugal. This is a side story, but he was very frugal. And so he'd go off and he'd think about, just think about things. And he'd come back and, they, and people would say, when he rode back, it looked like it had been snowing because he'd write all these little things, all these ideas, and he'd pin them to his jacket. And he'd come back covered in pins. Now, the cool thing is interesting. One, it took years for Yale University to be able to decipher what he wrote, because he wrote so small. But the other thing, he was so frugal, you learn so much about Edwards and his wife and her sicknesses and different things, because Edwards never threw out paper, and he would often use prescriptions and he used different things, and he just reused that paper, and by looking at the back of it, you could actually learn quite a bit about the context of living in Northampton in the 18th century. So it's quite a, quite a remarkable figure. So let me ask you this, what time are we at? Oh, um, who is responsible for conversion? The Holy Spirit. Okay, completely? Yeah? Right, so, so the work of salvation is the work of God um, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, but it does involve our will. Yeah? Yeah. That, the dilemma between God's sovereignty and our will uh, unless you're a Calvinist, then it's entirely of God. We're responsible. I knew that was good. That question of the interplay of, of God's work and our will is something that's beyond the scope of tonight. So we're not going to solve that. I do think it's a mystery revealed in Scripture, because in Scripture it affirms the importance of our will. Jesus says, follow me, which requires following him. You know, believe in me, which requires the act of the will. And yet we know that nobody can come to him unless the Spirit draws him, right? And we read this, you know. So there, it is a revealed mystery, a revealed mystery. It's not a, we don't know. It's a revealed mystery of the interplay of our will and God's sovereignty, I think. The, the, the scripture affirms both. Um, interestingly, in the history of the church in evangelicalism, you had Edward saying, talking about this revival, and says, it's surprising, it's just a surprising work of God. After Edwards, you have these other people that come along the scene and say, we don't need to be, survive. We don't need to, sur to, to uh, be surprised. We know the ingredients to an awakening. You need this, 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 and this, and behold, you'll have an awakening. And so it's quite an interesting thing, and you see this in evangelicalism, where let's have a revival meeting on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, but not on Saturday, you know, as if we can somehow manufacture this. Um, one of the characteristics of evangelicalism one century later is this real emphasis on this is what we can do. And one of the heirs to that in the 20th century is Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, to his credit, early on in his ministry, he talked about people, how many conversions at his meetings, and he quickly changed the language. He, doesn't, he, he stopped talking about conversions. What did he say? 
decisions. How many decisions for Jesus? He said, I don't know if they're converted. At first he said conversions. He changed it to decisions because he recognized, well, we, we don't know. So what are some characteristics? What are some characteristics of um, evangelical conversion? Just to kind of wrap things up a little bit. One is conversion is a process. It can be. It can be a key moment. Mine was February 14th, 1994. That was a key moment in my life. But there's been many moments. Like, my key moments. See, Newton, when he came to faith, when he came to faith, uh, after that storm, he goes to church, and he's, he's, he's starting to be alive to the things of God. And he, and he, and he remembers that date. But Newton also knew, because when he went back as a... As a um, a slaver, as a captain of a slave ship, he lived a horrible life. He went back to his old ways of living. And it was only when he entered into friendship did he begin to grow, which I always tell men this. This is really important. You'll only grow in faith if you have, some, if you have a companion. If you think it's just me and Jesus and that's enough, you are toast. You're absolute toast. So when I came to faith, I go, oh yeah, I'm alive for Jesus. I'm going to go tell my good buddy from England. I was living in China. My friend from England was coming back and he's going to be in Kunming and I was going to go meet him and tell him all about Jesus, old drinking buddy. And we got together and, and I got drunk every single day for a month with my buddy. Every day. And at the end of the month, he says, I don't notice any change in you. <laughs> you seem like the same, same David that I used to know. I went down to Vietnam and visited the fellow who led me to Christ, who was instrumental. And I said, you need to mentor me. And only when I started to get mentored and I entered into friendship did I begin to grow. And so I look at that date as a key date, but I, I think it was still a process, right? Conversion ought to lead to holiness in life. To, it, it should affect how you live your life. That's what evangelicals um, emphasize. Conversion also matters is conversion of the world is a priority. And once evangelicals got hold of missions, wow, look out, and Sharon's going to be uh, sharing uh, that uh, next week. Um, and you have a missionary with us uh, next week, so that'll be really cool, yeah. Um, conversion is something that we experience. The head and the heart go together. It's strategic, meaning you need to think about um, you know, sharing the gospel and who you share the gospel with. It needs to be holistic, affect every aspect of our life. And that's the thing about evangelicals, is it was evangelicals that were involved in the abolitionist movement. It was evangelicals, if, how many of you have pets and care about animals? Yeah. If you care about animals and you like the SPCA, you owe it to William Wilberforce, who started the SPCA. And so even the non-cruelty towards animals, to treat animals humanely, is a legacy of evangelicalism, historically. So evangelical spirituality today is global. It's all around the world. And we'll be talking about that more in the next two weeks. It's personal because guys like Newton and all these evangelicals, they knew, yes, we grow in community, but the reality is, is we die alone. That when you die, 
It's not your small group that's standing before God. It's you standing before God. And so it is personal. It is personal. And one of the things evangelicals emphasized was the importance of dying well. Of dying well. It's interior. We need to understand our hearts. It's pragmatic. One of the things about evangelicalism. And it's its strength and it's its weakness. It's extremely pragmatic. I mean, look around. Look at this room. There's not a lot of art in this room. I love this room. I love the Burke Room. Let the record show. I love the Burke Room. <laughs> um, what is that sound? Well, somebody backing up a truck. Okay. Oh, it's a salt truck. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what is that sound? Um, if you look around this room, you don't see a lot of art. If you look around this building, you don't see a lot of art. Evangelicals, they go into Westminster Cathedral and they complain because there's no space on the wall to project the lyrics of our song, right? I mean, that's the kind of way we think, right? We're very pragmatic, extremely pragmatic to the point of often, okay, we could maybe be a little more artistic. Um, we're organized. We know how to organize parachurch networks. We're experiential. Experience matters. We're reflective. And one of the things Newton did is every year he would remember key dates of his spiritual life. Do you ever do that? Key anniversary dates? Newton, every year, he would remember key dates in his life. Like that storm at sea, that was a key date. There's a few of them that he would remember every year. And the reason why he would mark them down, in Newton's word, I think it was Newton's words. He, well, no, this is what Bruce Heimar says about John Newton. He says, by doing so, he recreated the emotional landscape of his conversion. And so on February 14th, every year, much to my wife's chagrin, because it is Valentine's Day. Um, so I do celebrate Valentine's, but I also remember this. I often remember the, the context in which I was saved in a hotel room in Shanghai. And when I do that, I'm reminded of God's amazing grace. Who am I that you would choose a person like me? And I look back at my life. I mean, it's been 27, 28 years, whatever it's been. And I, and I think of, what does Newton say? He says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. So it reminds you of God's grace. He's led me this far. And the Lord has promised good to me. My, his word, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Right? And it's a process. God calls us to finish the race well. And you know, as I get older, I've been talking about that more and more because I meet too many guys, men and women, who in their autumn years, they just kind of give up the walk with Jesus. And they don't finish well. And so we need to finish well. And so I want to encourage you, um, you know, to map out your own conversion story. This is your homework this week. 
you know, write out your own. Now, some of you are born in the church. You're born and raised, but there's, there'd be a moment where, you know, being your confirmation or something like that, where your faith of your parents or your faith of somebody else became your own. So try to recapture that in your mind this week. Reflect on how many dangers, toils, and snares God has brought you through. And then I would encourage you to meditate on Amazing Grace on the lyrics, Amazing Grace, sing it. I have the original lyrics, Newton's original lyrics in here. The last two verses you may not recognize because they're what you don't usually see. Now, one thing I always love saying about Newton is this. Um, the tune, Amazing Grace, Newton didn't write. So in the 18th century, in his church in Olney, when Newton would write, he'd write a hymn a week and the hymn would correspond to the passage he was preaching. One of the weeks happened to be these lyrics, Amazing Grace. It was just to support his sermon that he was preaching on in Chronicles. The tune would have been a different tune. We don't know what tune it was. So we know these lyrics and we know there's a tune that we know, Amazing Grace, how are we singing? Where does this tune come from? Now, there's some thought that this tune for Amazing Grace was an old African, Amer old African spiritual tune. So what a picture of grace. A former slave trader saved by grace and former slaves coming together to write the greatest hymn ever written called Amazing Grace. And it embodies grace. So, I'm a shameless evangelical, um, but I'm a particular kind, an 18th century evangelical, because I think they get it right. The head and the heart together. Right, what were you going to say? Where's that verse, uh, when I've been there, yeah, he never wrote that. He, yeah, he didn't write that lyric. That, that was added uh, from a different hymn, about, I think uh, in the 19th century, yeah. I do, I know, and I do like it, don't get me wrong, but I thought I'd put Newton's, because these last two verses basically have captured the same sentiment, right? The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. That's yeah, the same, same feel to it. <laughs> Any other questions, comments? Amazing grace as an examine, yes, looking back and looking forward, that's good. Yeah, uh, catechesis is absolutely key. Oh, Denise, you got some great thoughts here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's good. The YMCA was an evangelical movement. Yes, in nineteenth century, nineteenth century, early nineteenth century. Yeah, good. All right. Well, let me close our time in prayer, and we will go from here. Okay. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. And it is such a sweet sound, and it did save a wretch like me. And Lord, we are thankful, for there was a time where we were lost, but we were found by you. That uh, we were blind, but we can see by the grace of your Holy Spirit. You taught our heart to fear. We realize that because of our sins, we were objects of wrath. And yet that same grace, our fears relieved 
because we read in Ephesians, but God, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. And how precious is this grace. And we remember the hour we first believed. Thank you for your grace, Lord. May we live grace-filled lives. And may our affections for the things of you continue to grow. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.